Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote If you've ever found yourself with 60 hours of work to do in your 40-hour week, week after week, year after year, and you're getting frustrated and burned out and felt like you're just not making the progress that you want to with your community, well, you are going to love today's guest. Her name is Alicia Mackay. She describes herself as a rebel, and you'll hear that coming out today. She calls things out, she tells engaging stories, and she's got a really important message about focusing on the things that really matter. A word of warning for those who have more polite ears than I do, there is a little bit of swearing in this show, which didn't surprise me. Alicia's book is called From Strategy to Action, A Guide to Getting Shit Done in the Public Sector. She said to me before our interview, Paul, I don't want to do one of those interviews with canned questions where we both know what the answer is going to be. So it really was a case of me following in my nose with Alicia taking us down some really interesting paths. She introduces a new way of thinking about leading people based on different stories that we can tell ourselves about what's going on in our organization. She calls on our senior leaders to develop some new skills around systems, performance, influence, and decision-making. And I learned a lot about the reasons why somebody might be struggling to make change in their community. And it's not because you as an individual are inadequate or don't have the skills or are doing the wrong thing. There's a whole lot more going on in the environment around you. So if you're leading anything or anyone, this episode is for you. Strap yourself in and welcome to the show, Alicia Mackay. Can you start by taking us back in time, I guess, and you know what were some of the big steps for you, Alicia, to becoming well-known as a leader in strategy and change in this country? That's a great question. I suppose I made it up as I went along, the same as the rest of us do, and actually it's an interesting one because I had, I was just telling you about this amazing webinar I had this morning with uh, this great group who've done all these amazing things in in the organizational change space in their government agency. And one of the reflections they had from being part of the program was how interesting and educational it was to have access to their senior leaders. And some of the things they said were, oh, I used to be really afraid of talking to, to my boss or talking to like the ELT because they seemed like they were just really busy and really important and knew what was going on. And I had a laugh about that because I thought, well, when I started my first job at a university, I was 22 years old. I was a foster kid and I was a teen mum and I was the first person in my family to go to university. So I had no idea what it would be to be a professional anything right so I turn up to the office and I'm trying to wear office clothes and be like hello I am a professional person uh, and be whatever I thought that was supposed to be and it was a nightmare 
But in that job, I had access because it was quite a small council. I had access pretty early on to, you know, politicians and to the executive leadership team. Mm. And so what I realized quite early that was both reassuring and mildly concerning was that nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody is making it up as they go along, whether you're a minister or a chief executive or a senior manager or a junior advisor, nobody knows what they're doing. And that's cool. But I think sometimes when we are prompted to tell these heroes journey, Mm. kind of a narrative story of how I got here or whatever, it's like there should be a formula or a magic ingredient or that you're supposed to follow steps and that you at some point are done or know what you need to know. And in actual fact, nobody knows what they need to know. We're all learning and growing. We're all making it up as we go. And so when I'm being facetious and saying, I just made it up as I went along, there's an element of of truth in that, I think, but that's not what you asked for. So I'll tell you what the process was, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, So look, 22 years old, came out of uni, junior policy wonk and strategic planner. So I was working in local government and doing things like writing policy and preparing strategies and action plans and actually the first ever training I went on is I had to come to Wellington so I was in the South Island it's come to Wellington and go on a facilitation course and I was baffled by it when I first got here I was like hold on so in this new job of mine this professional office job of mine I'm gonna go and learn how to do meetings in a meeting (laughs) and so when I started work I had two of my now three children and Bailey was five and and Charlotte was I think about 10 months old and when Bailey started primary school she had to do this poster about my family you know and so it was like I live with my mum and dad and my cat and my sister my dad his name is Hamish he works at the meatworks he cuts meat right very basic my mum's name is Alicia she works at the council. She has meetings. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I remember reading it and going, well, that's both funny and scarily accurate. <laughs> You're not wrong, kid. So I spent a few years at the council and did a lot of that sort of work. So policy work, strategic planning, a lot of engagement with the community and with politicians and with interest groups and a lot of that facilitation type stuff. So my first ever proper project was the biodiversity strategy or action plan for the district Mm. and so I'm 22 I'm fresh as anything and they biffed me into this room with federated farmers department of conservation fonterra um, national trust forest and bird I mean you name it and just went where you go I went oh my god (laughs) so you know it was very much a baptism by fire but I did that for a few years and got quite frustrated with a number of things about my role I think and about the organization and about the sector and I think some of those were around just the pace that we worked at the pace Mm. of change the pace of action you know so I would write the annual report each year Mm. and not a highly technical process we'd take last year's annual report we'd highlight all the stuff in yellow that might change this year, update that, you know, spit it out. And I'd be doing things from year to year, like just updating the financial year in a statement. So it would be like, this project did not happen this year because of contracted delays. And we expect it to be completed in the, and you'd take out 2010-11 and swap it for 2011-12, you know? So it was like, oh. So I got a bit frustrated with that. And I Mm. thought that the answer was to go into the private sector 
<laughs> so I spent a very short period of time running the business development of a law firm here in New Zealand and realized pretty quickly that that wasn't for me either. So I really enjoyed the pace of it, you know, so lawyers bill in six minute increments and no time is wasted, right? So it's mm. like bam, bam, bam. But the job is very much who can go to the best restaurants in Britomart and schmooze the best people and mm. look cool in Corrie Lounge. And I sort of went, oh, and I was away from my family a lot. And I thought, mm. oh, okay, this is going to get worse, not better. So I buffed mm. that in and then maybe thought that employment wasn't so good for me, you know, because every day they're like, come to work, come to this place, be yes. here for this many hours. And I don't care if you're on trade me for half the day. I just need you here at eight o'clock. And that drove me mad because I'd been through university with two children. So my youngest daughter at that time was born, I think, maybe six weeks into my post-grad year. And I was so used to calling the shots and being flexible and being efficient about <laughs> how to get things done, that just sitting on my ass at a desk all day, regardless of what, I'm like, yeah. I get twice as much of these people in half a day, let me out. But anyway, mm. so I forayed into self-employment very young and like most burgeoning consultants or, or fresh consultants your your last employer is always your first client yep. so was doing a bit of policy and strategic planning type stuff on contract did that for a while and then ended up going and doing some training and some more robust methods for things like problem solving and investment planning so I went and did my investment logic mapping in Australia I did some better business case practitioner accreditation and really more than anything managed to worm my way into Wellington by just mm -hmm. eating a lot of lunch, drinking a lot of coffee and smiling at people really nicely going, you should let me help you on your project because I want to learn. So I mean, that eventually was successful and I spent a bit of time working with companies and with the public sector to plan their investments, to plan their future to solve organizational problems and I loved that work loved it a lot but found the constraints of the methodologies that I was working with to be you know limiting at times and frustrating because and you'll know this from your work in the public sector pool when people are given a method or a framework or a tool to use or, or a legislative requirement particularly mm. in government we corrupt that immediately by turning it into a tick box exercise mm -hmm. And so rather than people bringing me in to genuinely interrogate the underlying sources of some of their organizational change problems or to meaningfully consider options for new investment, mm. what they were bringing me in for was they'd made a decision and now they needed someone to write the thing that they could get the approval with. So they're like, I'll run the workshop so I can have the thing. Mm. And so that was annoying too. And I went, well, there's got to be a better way than this. <laughs> So I just started making up my own things. And that meant, yeah, doing a lot of research, launching new programs, working with teams in slightly different ways uh, and kind of carving out my own niche. And I guess that's quite a long answer to a short question. But if you fast forward to, to 2020, whatever the hell 2020 is, holy shit, what a year. I've now kind of left behind a lot of my in-person work. Well, like most of us have, because we're all in front of a camera, but... I've left behind a lot of meter team type work, mm -hmm. which was very much around strategic facilitation and capability building and started to shift into more of a thought leadership space where I'm focusing on publishing and speaking and broadcasting and delivering learning and development in new ways, whether that's in person or digitally. And I guess taking the things that I've learned mm -hmm. in my career and rather than doing it, teaching other people to do it so that I can have bit more impact at scale which I mm. guess is the the big goal here mm. 
Well, awesome. Alicia, thanks for sharing that. And I, I loved listening to that because as you were talking about your early journey, it was kind of sparking some thoughts and memories in my own head, walking into public sector in the first week after a restructure. And yeah, oh, what's my job? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, says my manager. <laughs> I'm not sure. No. Why don't you sit there and read these things for the first week and maybe someone will yes. talk to you. <laughs> Oh. Maybe by then we'll figure it out. Or the, the second or third week and getting a call from a judge and having a yarn with them for about an hour and getting off the phone and someone said, oh, who was that? Oh, it was Judge so-and-so. You spoke to Judge so-and-so? <laughs> you know, it turns out he was just a dude like the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I loved hearing that. A lot of your journey recently that I've seen, at least, has, as you said, has been around helping teams to figure out their strategy. Yeah. Why do we find that so hard? Oh, that's really simple. We find it hard for two reasons, well, lots of reasons, but let me give you two. One of the reasons we find it really hard to pick a strategy is because we're all so busy. So we're all trying to jam 60 or 80 hours worth of work into a 40-hour container every week, mm. that creating the space to just go, what's all this, is really hard to do and it's not valued. So meaningfully creating intentional strategic space is the key responsibility of a senior leader. And it's also the thing that we are least good at prioritizing in the calendar or the work program mm. of a senior leader. So one reason is we don't have time. The second reason is that good strategy requires us to turn things off, shut things down, mm. piss people off, and just genuinely make hard trade-offs. So mm. strategy is not about coming up with a wish list of here's all the things we'd like to do and all the new projects we'd like to launch and all the new objectives we've got, because we're very good at that. People are very good at writing a list of the future they'd like. What we find really challenging, particularly in government, is saying, and that means that we're going to exit this program, that mm. we're going to shut down this initiative, that we're going to have a hard conversation with this stakeholder and let them know that we're not going to be funding them anymore. And that's really hard to do. And it's particularly hard in government, I think, because we're not choosing between right and wrong. Yeah. So I think there's this perception that making strategic trade-offs is about picking the right thing and that the other thing's yeah. Like there must be no good. But actually, if you're working in a community-facing role of any description, you're doing good stuff that helps people. And so you have to choose which good things that help people will help people the most and which will help them the least. And then you have to let things down that matter. Mm. So that is just hard. And that's why we're no good at it. Yeah. Or it's a choice of it's going to help this particular group of people over yep. this particular group of people and then that becomes right. as well yeah. yeah or in an organization and particularly because you know like public sector organization has just kind of goes like this so we go everything's going to merge and we're going to have mega ministries and then we yeah. go oh we're going to split everything out and we'll put the policy shop over here and the delivery over here and over here and then we'll go i know what we'll do transformation we'll bring all of that into one holistic one-stop shop and we just do this every few years right mm. And so what that leads to is we've got these kind of conglomerate agencies that a lot of them don't have a really long history. Some of them are lucky and do, a lot of them don't. 
and they don't work particularly well together because they haven't been crafted into a cohesive unit and like that makes sense but what it means at the organizational level even not even at the sector level just at the organizational level is that if you want to make meaningful strategic decisions that require trade-offs at, at top you're taking resources out of one place and putting them in another because mm. that's how that works right and nobody wants to lose their team their status yeah. their projects their budget and we've created this kind of win-lose mentality around decision-making at the top that makes it look like that's what that is. And so it's, mm. it's this internally competitive patch protecting. And that's not the fault. That is not the fault of people who work in those environments, not mm. for a second. They are a product of their environment. They're not mm. competitive because they're yuck. They're all getting up to come and do a good job every day. But we've created this environment of uncertainty with continuous restructure and change and of funding coming in and out. And there's also kind of this, this inevitable democratic reality that just comes with being at the whim of whatever the political flavor of the day is, you know, that just comes with being in government. And so what cracks me up, and like, I'm so into the new Public Service Act. I'm like, this is great. We're talking about focusing on our biggest problems instead of our biggest agencies, love this, mm. love the cross-collaboration, love the joint agency working groups. That's all good. The problem is I know that there are people who work in these offices that don't talk to people three computers over. <laughs> so the prospect of them having meaningful, collaborative, productive relationships with people from other agencies is kind of ambitious. Mm. It's not that it's not done, but it's just bloody hard. So, I mean, the other thing with the Public Service Act or the Public Sector Act, I don't even know the proper name. And from what I've seen, a lot of people, it's just passed them by. They don't know that it's actually been enacted. And what's your hope for what might come out of that? Yeah, so I think my hope for what might come with the new direction and, you know, legislation is the beginning of cultural and organisational change. It's not the end of it. It's a great intention around let's be focused on outcomes and let's focus on pulling together some of the just exceptional capacity and capability we've got in the public service in a way that actually joins us up to do good things and isn't focused on protecting patches, but actually on delivering for the people who need it. And it's also focusing on building that leadership capability in some really critical areas that I'm really passionate about. Are we making good decisions? Are we being strategic? Are we taking a systems view and pulling levers instead of just doing little bits? But what that's going to need is quite a significant shift around the way that we set that up for systems, right? So it's all very well telling people we need you to collaborate. But if your performance incentives and your development and your structure is based around individual KPIs, individual budgets, short-term incentives, well, it doesn't work, does it? And so what happens is we, we go and ask, even inside an organisation, and this isn't just government, this is everywhere, we say, the value here is collaboration. We want agile collaboration. And then we don't let people share a cost code, you know? So it's like, if we don't get the supporting systems right that enable those communication mechanisms and for everyone to share the glory and to not be penalized for mm. doing what they've been asked to do, they're not going to do it. Mm. And unless we start recruiting for and developing meaningfully 
those skills around strategic capacity and systems thinking and meaningful influence and what performance actually looks like, if we don't create a development pathway for that, it's not going to happen by accident. Mm. I got trained in that stuff when I was working in the public sector and then I just found it really hard because I felt like I was alone in that Mm -hmm. system. There was no support around me. I was trying to push the envelope or do something different and it it just wasn't going anywhere. What do you have for the lonely middle manager who's gone to a course and they've done that? How do they get through it? You know what it's like when you've been to a conference or you've been to some training Mm. and you're all stuff and excited (laughs) and you come back to work and you've got fires burning and you're like, it's all cool new stuff. And then by morning tea, it's just kind of like the jaded kind of glazed eye thing is back and you're like, why am I doing this? Mm. So look, I can't fix everyone, but (laughs) although I'll give it a crack. (laughs) But one of the requirements of the internal leadership development work that I do is senior leadership sponsorship. And so for the executive leaders, what they think that is, God, I'm just giving away all my secrets today. What they think that is, is that they're coming along as mentor support so that they can create internal development of their people and so that they're making sure that people development and organization development off the in two different pockets. Because what we tend to do is we go, this is our organizational strategy. And then we go and buy some off the shelf leadership training thing where you tick five things and you get an acronym and, and never the twain shall meet. And so you've got someone with a good CV over here and a leadership team with a good strategy over here, but we haven't merged the two together. So it's really important to me that if I'm doing any kind of leadership development work, that that's really closely linked to, hey, what do you guys need and where do you want to go, right? So there's that. So that I say, look, you're coming along to, to be a mentor and you're coming along to make sure that you're doing organization development, mm-hmm. not just people development, and they go, cool. But actually, a big driver for that involvement is so that they learn too. And mm-hmm. so that they are speaking the same language and they value the same things. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, as you've pointed out, you're a middle manager, you've gone back to work, you're using words people haven't heard before, you're referencing some kind of Venn diagram, you're like, <laughs> let's do it like this. And everyone's looking at you like you're daft. Mm-hmm. And unless you've got the support of your peers and of your senior leaders going, yeah, yeah, cool, that's how we do things around here now, it's just like a drop in the bucket, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm an individual and I'm interested in making some change, I need to be thinking not just about what do I change, but actually what's going on within my organization and how can I bring people with different influences to me along on that journey? Oh, totally. So I kind of like in, in, in fiction or in movies, there's two main kinds of of format so you've either got the character driven story or the plot driven story right so you're talking about a character driven story which is let's follow this central protagonist and watch their journey from zero to hero and and all the things they face along the way yeah Mm -hmm. and so that's that's the main kind of story and that's driven by what people think what people do the actions people take in a plot driven story you're focused on activities and actions and it's usually things like a like a mystery novel or, or an Agatha Christie, you know, like you're right. piecing together the dots to figure out what the thing is at the end. And you've got your heroes and your characters. But the main thing is, you know, <laughs> who killed the man in the room? Yeah. And an arena-driven story, 
which is the third kind of fiction format that we don't talk about very oh, often. Sorry, an arena-driven. Arena-driven story. That's where actually the main focus of the story is on the environment and the challenges that that creates, like I alluded to before. So you're thinking maybe like Gilligan's Island or Survivor, which is all mm. about outward outlast, how do we battle this environment we're in? And I think that leadership, particularly in the public sector, is an arena-driven story. So yeah, we can focus on our characters, which is where we put everyone through some kind of profile and give them an acronym or a type of bird or, or a color. And we're like, you're a blue dot, go talk to the red dot. Yep, we can do that. We can be plot driven, which is kind of what we did in the last iteration of public sector reform in the late 80s, where we go, if we just have contracts and KPIs, that'll work. Let's yeah. piece together the plot. And I think the next frontier is that arena driven story, which goes, hey, do you know what? We all exist inside this shifting, changing, complex, entangled context in this arena. And if we think about like the Roman battle arenas, what's special about them isn't that there's two people fighting it out. What was special about the arena was that it was a public space. So the people who are in the arena battling not just with each other, but with their environment and they're being watched, it's visible and they're part of a broader context. And that's what leadership is now. It's put aside all of that and go, yep, it's really important you grab onto your agency, but most of your decisions and change and performance is driven by context. So unless you're tapped into that, mm. nothing works. Okay, this is fascinating. And I'm trying to wrap my head around this now, Alicia. <laughs> and, and I'm throwing it at you today. I've had three coffees. I told you I was like, <laughs> so zing today. Arena driven leadership. So if I'm now stepping into that as a way of thinking about being a leader, yes. what is that going to mean for me on an ordinary Monday morning? Oh, I'm glad you asked. So what that means is that if you just go to work and you sit in front of your computer and you open your emails and you tick your boxes and you fill in your work program, you're going to stay around about here and you're possibly going to go backwards. Mm. And that if what you want to do is to create meaningful change, or to deliver outcomes that matter to your customers or community, you're going to have to think a bit bigger picture. And I think there's four, there's four parts in that that we should be developing. And one of them is around that strategic decision-making capacity. So that's going, how is it that we create the space to step back and go, yeah, yeah, what's going on here? Like mm -hmm. for everyone, what's mm -hmm. going on here? What are our big problems? What are we going to have to switch on? What are we going to have to switch off? How are we going to get there? And who do we need on the journey? So there's, there's that stuff. So yeah, that might be... Jump in there, Alicia. I mean, generally what seems to happen, you know, that's a once a year thing or maybe a six yeah. a month thing. This year has been a real test for that because the plan that you had back in January isn't going to work as of March. You know, Mate, the plan you had last week is going to be irrelevant next week. <laughs> so yeah, what, what does good look like from your point of view as to how often and how to do that strategic thinking together. Oh, that's such a good test. I like you. This is good. So you know how everybody have, has these weekly meetings and they all get together and they go around in a circle and justify their own jobs by explaining all the things they've been doing and then read out summaries of other more important meetings that they've been to and then like solve operational things and then everybody yawns and, and logs off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Love what those meetings. That space... <laughs> to have more important conversations. How are we tracking? Mm. Do we need to tweak? What's shifted in our environment in the last week? Mm. You know, like who's called? What's happened? What did the minister say? And does that mean a readjustment? Are our priorities still the same? Are we on track? Mm. What if our conversations on a regular basis 
were strategic instead of operational, particularly mm. at the leadership level when actually that stuff shouldn't even be making it to the table. Mm. So using time together more usefully is probably the short answer to that question. Like you're already having the space, just use it better. So there's that bit. And then I think there's a systems bit, which is rather than focusing on fixing people all the time, restructures, pointing fingers, buying new software, whatever it is we're doing, I think we need to consider the way things fit together instead mm. of things on their own. So there's a systems thinking piece in there that goes, if you're turning up to work and you're trying to solve a small problem about why this team's doing this, why do they keep buying something outside of the procurement policy? Why do those people mm. keep doing that? It's, it's asking the bigger question, better questions and going, yeah, but why? Like if we assume that everyone turns up to work to do a good job and you know 80% of them do, then what is making that hard? Because there's no such thing as a single crime. So if there is a policy violation over here or there's a performance issue over here, in all likelihood there's something that sits underneath that and I should dig a bit deeper to find it. So, you know, Treasury had their budget leak last year, which as it turned out, it wasn't a budget leak. And the same week that Treasury had the budget leak, so that was on the, I think the Monday or the Tuesday, I was speaking in Treasury on the Friday and I was delivering to a bunch of change managers about change management, which, I mean, they should probably deliver to me about that. But anyway, that's what I was doing. And I was thinking, shit, what am I going to be going into? Like, it's been chaos at Treasury this week. It's going to be, and I had my videographer with me and he, because he was filming me presenting and he had a, like a suitcase of camera gear and that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, let's go a bit early. There'll be security staff and, you know, it's going to be pretty intense. So we get to Treasury and you've got to go up the lift and you go into the reception and I go to reception and I'm like, hello, I'm Alicia. I'm speaking here today. And the chick behind the desk is like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, hold on. Oh, yeah, you're in meeting room, whatever, down the hallway. Walks me over to the, to the door, like scans your swipe card, boots the door open with her foot, holds the door open. She's like, you're down there. And we're like, okay. And so we wander into the bowels of treasury, right? Go and set up in the meeting room. That's cool. I deliver my thing, do my presentation. We're having the chats afterwards. And there's maybe 40 or 50 people in there. And, and I, they all had little name stickers because you know you've got to sign in and all these government agencies, you've got to right. sign in. Their name stickers on. And I was speaking to someone and I took a second glance at her name sticker because like it said Christine on it. And the last person I'd spoken to was Christine. So I was like, <laughs> that's funny. And then I looked and I interrupted this woman. I was like, sorry, excuse me. Something's going on here. Either all change managers are called Christine <laughs> or there's something else going on. And she goes, oh yeah, a bunch of us all came in at the same time. And so we came to reception and the nice lady at the reception just swiped her swipe card and printed us out, you know, 10 stickers with her name on it. So we just came right in. And I went, bloody hell. So we're in treasury, the week of the budget drama, there's 50 odd people milling around in there. Nobody knows who's there or what they're doing. We could be doing anything. And I just went, this is interesting. And then so the report came out at the start of this year that had kind of done the inquiry into what the hell happened. Because it, if you might, I don't know if you remember, but they initially were like, oh shit, we've been hacked by the opposition. And then as it turned out, there was inadequate security provisions on the website. Yeah, so they just Googled the shit out of it and found it on the website. <laughs> so when they dug a bit deeper, they went, oh, actually, there's some fairly systemic concerns in Treasury around security and governance and quality assurance. And so I'm reading the report going, well, yeah, because that's how that works. There's no such thing as a single crime. And so that's kind of a long 
answer, I guess, to my point around when we're there on a Monday morning, figuring out how to be arena driven, how to tap into context, it's about going, not how do we deal with Christine's performance or how do we deal with website security? It's going, what's this about? Mm. What's going on here? Where do I really need to get to, to pull the lever that makes this kind of behavior impossible? So I think every time you're faced with a problem that pops up and you know, you're know you gonna get like 42 of them a day, taking the space to stop and to go, yeah, but why? Two or three times, or is it though? Is there something I haven't considered here? What else might this connect to? Who else might this connect to? Mm. Who do I need to have a conversation with to learn more about this before I start pointing fingers and assuming everyone else is wrong? Because I reckon if people have positive intent 80% of the time, and if we assume it 100% of the time, the maths mm. is good. And then just two out of 10 people are assholes and what are you gonna do? Fantastic. So, so that, that's a couple. And then I said there were four. So there was decisions and systems. Those, mm-hmm. are the, those are the two biggies. And then there's another two biggies if we think about context. And one of them is performance. What we tend to treat performance as is this kind of get shit done, hero model, operational, tick things off, mm-hmm. get your fingers down in the weeds type thing. And the highest performing senior leaders that I know do none of that. They work less and they do more. Mm-hmm. And they're focused on actually if we go for the arena again okay well if we've got a big goal what are the most important levers for me to focus on to make that happen so maybe it's customer experience and I know that we throw everything at that we go ham on customer experience and we don't panic so much about everything else or maybe it's uh, rapid response because we're in a disaster or crisis response mode let's throw everything at that and turn down some of the other stuff so there's a misunderstanding about performance leadership that requires at the moment micromanagement and intensity whereas actually real performance is about macromanagement Mm. and focusing on the things that actually matter and empowering people to do everything else Mm. so there's that and the last one of all and I was rushing through performance to get to that one is about influence and this one is massive because like I was saying how how can we do joint agency work when people in the same office can't even chat? It's actually, how are we creating the kind of meaningful connections and relationships that help us to have impact at scale? So if you're turning up at work on a Monday morning and you've spent most of your day in front of your computer, well, that's cool, but the good work you've done and the good ideas you've had are going to stay with you. Mm. And if you want them to get out in the world and grow and be something else, then you're going to have to work with other people. And that means having really good intentional capability around what influence looks like. Mm. I love that you ended with that one, Alicia. I think that's that's a really nice tie-in to what this show is all about. We're trying to help people to get out of their office, to connect with others who they might otherwise spend their time looking at a screen saying, yeah, we need to influence that person or what does that person, that organization think? But what if I don't like what they say? Well, wouldn't that be even better? Because they're already thinking it and now you know about it. Mm, mm. It's like when people tell me they can't do camera work because they don't like their face. And I'm like, what face do you think you're turning up to meetings with? It's the same face. It's just that you can see it now. Like, 
it's not that your disengaged stakeholders aren't disengaged and shitty at you if you don't talk to them. It's just that you're not engaging mm. with it. Yeah, they're still having the conversation. Yeah. They're still saying it. It's worse because you're not there. Yeah. That's right. Mm. And I, do you know what I think is hard though? Because I love your mission. I love this actually. Let's take engagement beyond that ticker box, special consultative procedure stuff, you know, mm. and there's a lot of things I hate about the way we do consultation. And I think one of them is that we design processes that really only work for a certain proportion of the population. And those are people that you're going to hear from anyway. Mm. So the people that are going to mobilize and write a submission and turn up to speak at a hearing, deliberation hearing, mate, you're going to hear from them no matter what. Yeah. But you've effectively shut out the people that you should be helping the most, who are the most vulnerable and who have the quietest voice. Mm. And that's not okay. So I, I, have, a, I have a problem with that. But I also have a problem, which I guess seems like it's in opposition to that one. So you'll be familiar with the, the IAP2 spectrum of public participation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's like, for anyone who's listening that isn't familiar with that, and lucky you, there's like six or seven different stages, I can't remember, all the way through from telling someone something about what you're going to do, all the way through to empowering them to make their own decisions. And then there's steps in the middle around, you know, you might be informing, you might be consulting and getting feedback. What that spectrum has been corrupted for, like all of these tools are, is the idea that there is this implicit um, hierarchy mm. and that empowerment is always better than information. Mm. And what that has led people to do, particularly in the public sector, is to do consultation that looks like something it isn't because mm. they feel as though they're supposed to be engaging and empowering. And so they try to make it look like that, but it's very disingenuous because the decision has been made and it was the right decision. And they're making it look as though there's opportunity for feedback when there isn't. And you know what? Directive informational leadership and communication has a place and it's important. And people have a lot more respect for you if you're able to stand up and go, all right, guys, there's a lot of stuff that we can't change here, but I need you to know what it means for you. And I, I want to hear about what that is so we can support it. That's cool. But standing up and saying, hey, what do you think? Have we got it right? We might change it. When you know full bloody well you're not going to, it creates distrust and it creates the kind of perception that we're all battling against in the public sector. And it's shit. I don't like it. Amen. That's yeah, <laughs> that's a great rant, Alicia. And yeah, I think I talked about that in the very first episode of this show. I said, yeah, we, we don't hate consultation. We're not here to say don't consult. But yeah. when you're consulting, tell people that you're consulting and be really clear about what that means and what, yeah. what is going to happen with their voice. Yeah, and market about like what they need. So there's an achievement bit in there where people get so tangled up in their slide deck and how they're going to say the thing they're going to say and convincing people of something that they've kind of forgotten that people don't give a shit about them or what they've got to say. They care about what they might potentially lose or what they might potentially be affected by and how their lives will change. And when you run a meeting or a relationship or a conversation that focuses on that and just puts you out of the way, it's a lot more useful. So when I got people that, that come to me for influence training and they're like, oh, people will think this about me and how do I put that in my email and, and whatever. I'm like, no one gives a shit about you. They're so tangled up in their own stuff and what you think of them, but they're not judging you at all. Mm -hmm. And your own self-concern is the biggest barrier to connecting with other people.
So what if you were just you and worried about being attuned to that and serving them? Because that would just get everything else out of the way. Mm. Yeah. We call that in business lab right side up thinking. So the usual way, the wrong side up is, yeah, where you're first, your individual needs, concerns, worries, or what you're thinking about, what are they going to think of me? But actually the right way should be, yeah, what's happening for them and trying trying to always just think of them it's worth saying that that doesn't necessarily come naturally to people and like that's all right so I think what I find challenging about a bunch of the kind of advice you get or the leadership training you get is it kind of seems to come with this like your wrong lens or like this is the way to be and if you're not like this you're broken so if you're not right side up then you're obviously an asshole and I just think it's so much more helpful to be like god we are all a bit suck aren't we like we're just all worried about our own stuff Mm. And we're all tangled up in our own lives and we all put down things that matter and make crap choices because we're overwhelmed and we just all do that. Mm. And that's okay. Like we're all there, but we're trying to spend as much time above the line as we can. And Mm. we're trying to design our lives and our workplaces and our communities in a way that just make it easier for the right thing to happen than the wrong thing. Mm. And I just, yeah, I I get a bit grumpy at the the finger pointing that comes with a lot of this stuff because it seems to come with this if you're getting trained it must be because you're shit and when I work with executive teams or chief executives it's really important to have the conversation early on that goes a you absolutely need to keep developing mm-hmm. so in fact it's more important than ever mm-hmm. uh, but b change at this point isn't an indication that you've been doing things wrong until now it's that you have been rewarded for a particular kind of behavior through, mm. you know, promotion and just doing well and that kind of thing. And that's awesome. And you have developed that strength and that's amazing. And you reach a point of overdevelopment of a strength in your mm. life with anything where it starts to become a weakness. So what we're not trying to do is put away everything that makes you awesome. We're trying to channel that in a slightly different direction so that we can fill some of the gaps that inevitably you will get if you've tracked up. So if you're an engineer and now you're the boss of an engineering company, odds are that you're super good on the delivery, you're super good on the technical. You've been doing that the whole time. That's cool. You've overdeveloped that, Mm. but that might've been to the detriment of some of your other more systems thinking based skills or some of your influence. And that's cool. Let's just take some out of there. Let's put it over here. And it's not because what you've done is wrong. You did the best you had with what you had and what you were rewarded for. And we'll just keep moving, shall we? And I just, yeah, I, I really get shitty about the the idea that there's a perfect way to be for everyone or that we can never be done because we're just never done. We're just wrong in ways we don't know about yet. <laughs> nice, Alicia. Hey, I think that we should probably start wrapping things up, but I've loved your message and I'm excited about what's next for you trying yeah. to help leaders and to really scale up some of the work you've been doing. So what, what's the best way for people to learn more if they've been interested by what they've heard? Oh, that's a good question too. I forget I'm supposed to do the plug bit at the end. Yeah. So the two most useful ways to hang out with me, to follow me on LinkedIn, Alicia Mackay. I'm there all the time. It's my favorite place. It's my playground. Uh, but also if you head to my website, aliciamackay.co.nz, you do have the opportunity to sign up for my Wednesday wisdom. And I'm quite proud of my Wednesday wisdom. So Every Wednesday at 6.45am for the last, since July 2018, Mm. so what's that, two and a half years, I've sent out a thing 
to my to my followers every week and when I did like I canned my mailing list when everybody got all panicky about like oh do, have you got their permission and I was like ah so July 2018 I, I cleared it out and I started from scratch and so my first ever Wednesday wisdom went out in July 2018 to 28 people <laughs> and it's gone out every week at 6 45 a.m new zealand time ever since and now we're up to like three and a half thousand people that get it every week and i'm like oh cool and i get all these great responses back and it's usually like you know two to five hundred words on here's what i'm thinking about life work and leadership at the moment here's something that might help you here's something to think about so you probably don't want to buy me at the moment you don't buy people you watch on podcasts but you might want to hear more of my stuff so i would love to have you on wednesday wisdom and you can sign up to that on my website awesome love it alicia Hey, well, thank you for coming on the show and yeah, having a good free form conversation with us. Great. Sharing some stories. That was cool. Matt, you are totally welcome. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nga mihi mo te whakarongo.